Well, thank you very much. Appreciate your being here tonight. Uh, as Stephanie said, I'm Nick Castell. I'm a reporter with IdeaStream, which is WCPN on the radio, WVIZ on TV. We are here tonight for our sixth Constitutional series where we talk about the United States Constitution, the compromises that brought it into being, and the ways that it uh, governs and guides the way we do business here today. So tonight, our topic is impeachment, which you may have heard something about recently. I want to just begin by reading uh, this very brief uh, section that the founders gave us about impeachment. This is uh, Article 2, Section 4. The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. That's what we're talking about tonight and what it means for the current occupant of the White House. Um, joining me tonight are our two guests here. Immediately to my right is James Robinault, a Watergate expert, author of the two books you see before you here, January 1973, and Ballots and Bullets, and also a partner at Thompson Hine. And uh, next over is Jonathan Adler, professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, the director of the Coleman Burke Center for Environmental Law, and uh, also a founding member of uh, Checks and Balances, right? Did I get that name right? Which is a group of conservative and libertarian attorneys who uh, believe in the rule of law and have been skeptical of the current uh, president's relationship with that rule of law, to say the least. Um, That's fair. Uh, Jonathan, I want to begin with you, actually, and, and look at this uh, impeachment clause. Uh, everyone always talks about this vague phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors. What are they? Good question. Um, uh, then Congressman Ford said it's whatever uh, a majority of the House of Representatives said it was, um, which is, is, is somewhat fair, um, but I think un, uh, uh, obscures uh, the history that, and the reason that clause was used. Uh, and I'll give an abbreviated version of this history, but the, the founders' experience with impeachment uh, came from their knowledge and understanding of uh, how impeachment had been used as a check on executive power and monarchical power in particular uh, in England, um, going back to the 14th century. Uh, it was something that they had experience with in the colonies, uh, impeachments in Massachusetts and in Pennsylvania. Um, one of my favorite little f uh, factoids um, is while the founders are meeting in Philadelphia during the Constitutional Convention uh, over in England, um, Edmund Burke, yes, that Edmund Burke, is, prosecute, is the prosecutor in the impeachment of Warren Hastings for the abuses uh, that Burke and others believed he was committing as governor of India. Um, and so the, the idea was that there was, uh, there needed to be uh, some a check on uh, the president. Um, and again, just to put a couple of the things on the table that it's important that we remember, the Articles of Confederation uh, were among their features or defects was that they pretty much only had a legislature for all practical purposes. There were no federal courts. There was no executive. And the lack of an executive was, some, was one of the reasons that caused folks to consider revising the Articles and, and led to the Constitution. And, but there were there were conflicted views because on the one hand there was a recognition that we needed uh, an individual who could direct the the execution of the laws and the functioning of the government, but there also was this fear of what happens when you give too much power to a single person, and um, so one of the things that was settled on was there needed to be a means of of checking the president. 
uh, and um, but that it also should be less judicialized than some aspects of of the way of, of impeachment as it had been um, uh, used in, in the English tradition. While impeachment had, had been a power that was exercised in Parliament, uh, it was often connected with a bill of attainder. Uh, there were criminal penalties, uh, sometimes death, uh, associated with impeachment. Um, and the founders didn't want that. And, and some of the things we see in the Constitution are that the only thing impeachment allows is then a trial in the Senate and removal from office, disqualification from uh, future holding office in the future, but any criminal prosecution is then done separately through the judiciary. So that, that was another uh, choice that was made, that, that, the, that there was a need to be able to check the president by impeaching them. Uh, now back to your question. Hi, Treason they knew, bribery they knew, were things that should be impeachable um, uh, because they represent betrayals uh, of, of the trust that one holds uh, and generally involve putting one's own personal interest ahead of the interest of the nation. And so if you look at examples that are given by Edmund Randolph, James Madison, and so on, uh, Alexander Hamilton, they all talk about those sorts of offenses. Um, they recognized that that was not a complete list, um, they didn't want it to simply be political disagreement or ineffectual administration. So maladministration, a phrase that was considered was excluded. Uh, and the idea of other high, high crimes and misdemeanors would capture the idea that what is involved is uh, a betrayal of this trust, an abuse of power, abuse in particular of the national power, which has its, its fullest uh, expression in things like foreign affairs. Um, we may think they were prescient about some of this, um, that those were the sorts of things they were concerned about, abuse of the, of the uh, uh, pardon power as the sort of thing that could also um, be the sort of thing that would justify an impeachment. But it wasn't a list. It wasn't a set, defined set of things. It also wasn't and didn't require uh, a violation of any statutory or positive law. The phrase of high crimes and misdemeanors, it was understood to embody these abuses but not necessarily technical violations of statutes. Um, and if you look at the examples they gave, it wasn't, oh, well, we've passed a law on this and the president violated it. It was, what if the president uh, told his minions, go commit these crimes, don't worry, I'll pardon you afterwards? Uh, and Or what if the president decided to use uh, the president's control over foreign affairs to enrich the president at the expense of the nation? Um, right, that wouldn't matter if there was a statute on those things. Those would be the sorts of things that that the legislature could include are a betrayal of of the president's oath. Uh, uh, Jim Robinault, let me ask you then: Looking at the way impeachment has actually played out in the real world, how have you seen this used? Does it seem like it has been an effective way to check the power of an executive who is maybe up to no good? Well, uh, first of all, I've spent the last ten years traveling with John Dean, Nixon's White House counsel, um, speaking about what it means to be White House counsel and so forth. And so um, I have that perspective uh, from, from Watergate. Um, and I would say that the way it has played out, impeachment, I think both of us would agree, is supposed to be a very rare thing. It's supposed to be that if you've got a rogue president, you get them out of office by election. In fact, there was a debate early on in the convention about whether or not to even have an impeachment outlet. And they eventually decided they were gonna have that. Um, and then when they got back to it about a month later, 
they said, well, what are the things that would allow us to impeach a president? And what they came up with initially was bribery and treason because um, they were worried about foreign influence in our country. And they were worried about foreign influence in our electors. They were worried about bribery being involved in our elections. So that was kind of their core focus. These things, these are the things. And then the question is, well, we know what bribery is. They, treason actually had a very expanded definition back then that they narrowed down in the convention to be you know, acts of war and that sort of stuff. But then the question is, well, what else? And as uh, Professor Adler has said, you know, it, maladministration is not what they wanted. They don't want to get after somebody just because they think they're a poor administrator or they don't like their policies. It's got to be something more than that. And they used the term high crimes and misdemeanors, and it was put in like a flash without a lot of debate about what it meant. And it meant something to them back then. They all could agree on it. And today we struggle with what does that mean, high crimes and misdemeanors. And the real key to it is understanding the word high. Um, high crimes are not just ordinary crimes. They are crimes against the state. They are crimes against the people. And it's where somebody, and the, they were looking at things like where somebody bribes electors or gets foreign influence involved in our elections. These are the core things they were worried about that would be high crimes and really high misdemeanors too. Uh, not just ordinary crimes, but high crimes. And they're political crimes, and so that's the way it developed. But as we've seen over time, we had you know, Andrew Johnson was impeached um, right after the Civil War in a very partisan um, affair that, that was, you know, you could spend a lot of time talking about it. Frankly, I don't think it has as much to do with us today as the more recent impeachment. Um, so he was impeached, but then won in the Senate. And then Bill Clinton was impeached and won in the Senate. Richard Nixon, everybody thinks he was impeached. He was not impeached. He resigned before they even got there. They had voted articles of impeachment out of the House Judiciary Committee. And he resigned once a tape came out that showed that he was involved in the cover-up. But what's really interesting to me is that the House Judiciary Committee formed a group, both the majority and the minority, to say, what is impeachment all about? You can go read it. It's in their report. Hillary Clinton helped in that effort, actually. In, she, in Watergate, as, right? As a young lawyer, right. um, to put that together. And on the one hand, the majority said exactly what uh, the professor said, which is, a high crime and misdemeanor is a political crime. It's what Gerald Ford said. It's whatever the Congress thinks it is. It's political. It's a political judgment. Um, and the minority, the people who are supporting Nixon, said, no, you have to have a crime. It has to be a federal crime. Um, so that's how it's kind of played out over time that there's been this debate back and forth. So, oh, sure, Jonathan Adler, go ahead. I mean, I mean, one thing about that's interesting is in some respects, both the majority and the minority were wrong um, in the sense that, as we both said, the, the founders understood the, the class of actions that could be considered impeachable, even if they didn't have a list. So it really wasn't, while they recognized it would be political, and if you look in the Federalist Papers, and Alexander Hamilton has, I guess, three of the 65, 66, I think 67 talk about kind of what would happen in, in a Senate trial, and there's a recognition of, the, of, of, the, of politics, but, but the founders often 
would repeatedly say that by political, they typically meant things that affected the nation as a whole and, and that the nation had a, a, had a stake in. So when they talked about something being political, they, didn't, they weren't thinking about partisanship. They were thinking about things that have to be resolved through the political process. And on, in terms of why the minority was wrong, um, you know, one of the things that, the, that was debated very heavily um, when the, during the ratification debates um, and something that thankfully through most of our history we have not had to think too much about that may be changing um, was the pardon power. And um, because a lot of anti-federalists, and it relates to impeachment in a way that I want to kind of close the loop on because it's important, the anti-federalists were terrified of the pardon power because it meant that the executive not only had the ability to not prosecute, which wasn't a big deal because they didn't expect there to be a ton of federal prosecutions. They saw most criminal enforcement as being, but the idea that the president could pardon meant that they felt the president could or, or the president's minions could act with impunity and do the sorts of things that British soldiers had done, do the sorts of things that they were aware of having been done um, by the state. And they were very afraid of it. And one of the things that comes out in these debates is, no, look, is, is that while it is certainly true, and the Supreme Court has said this, and we've always understood this, the president's pardon power as a legal matter is absolute. We actually have cases on this from after the Civil War involving pardoning of um, former Confederate, Confederate officers. Congress has no ability to constrain the exercise of the pardon power. It's not clear whether Congress really has the authority to inquire about how it's used. And the judiciary has nothing to say about uh, a pardon other than to recognize that one has been given. But one of the things that comes out is that doesn't mean the president can act with impunity because if, if the president uses the pardon power in, in a way that is so beyond the bounds of the sorts of things that power is based for, it, it was, was, was given for, that it, is, it would be a crime or misdemeanor and, and something that would be subject to impeachment. So it's not that you need a, a violation of a crime. In fact, the president can do something that the president has the absolute unchallengeable legal right to do, and this has come up in the last couple of years, th these questions, and while it may be perfectly legal, it may still be something that could be a high crime or misdemeanor. So that means not only use of pardon power, but when we talk about things like the way the president exercises his control over the Justice Department, um, there's a legitimate question about whether or not Congress can constrain the way the president instructs the Justice Department. We can debate that within Article II. Um, but if the president exercises that power in a way that is fundamentally abusive, the fact that it's legal does not immunize the president against the claim that it's a high crime or misdemeanor, and Congress concluding that's, that such abuses are a high crime or misdemeanor would be perfectly appropriate and within the tradition and understanding uh, with which those terms were adopted. So let's uh, let's get to the fun stuff here. We've talked around it a little bit, but I want to you know lay things out on the table too. The current impeachment inquiry that that has just wrapped up, or at least you know public hearings at this point have. Um, uh, Jim Robinell, could you just lay out for us, and I'll have you both do this actually, what are the core issues that are really at play here in this impeachment inquiry into uh, President Trump and his dealings in Ukraine? Okay. Well, let me start off by saying I am, uh, my own bias, I'm a very much a partisan on this. Um, I do believe that what President Trump did is a high crime and misdemeanor. Um, and I have very uh, strong feelings about it, but I also am a realist about what's going to happen. 
um, and that's probably what a lot of people in this room feel that you you feel that that he should be impeached, but you're a realist. You understand the Senate's not going to convict. Uh, and I wrote about that in the Washington Post just on Sunday mm -hmm. in an article about how this is different from Watergate for a lot of reasons. I just don't think it's it's moving public opinion right now. But what we do know here's here's my view. What we do know is that the president, I think, it's just indisputably uh, proven as of today and uh, and earlier that he was using his power to get a foreign government to do an investigation of a political rival, and he was holding military money um, until that was done. It was definitely a bribe. It was an extortion, however you want to call it. And I absolutely think that almost everybody in this country thinks that and understands that, despite all these fights in the Congress. The issue to me that the Republicans should be using here is, is it substantial enough, this one act of his, to be impeachable given that we have an election right around the corner? That's really their argument. That's their best argument. Um, and I think my own view is, if this is not impeachable, what is? Um, it is absolutely right at the core of what Congress or what the uh, founders were worried about, this in interference in our elections, free and fair elections, which, by the way, that's what Watergate was about. It was about free and fair elections. Go back and listen to Senator Sam Irvin's opening statement. It's about free and fair elections that we can all believe in um, and how central and important that is. So. I think that that's the big question here, and I think the, it's going to be very interesting once it gets to the Senate what the if they're going to continue this nonsense of defenses that well he really didn't say it he really didn't mean it uh, even if he said it it's not a big deal uh, everybody else does it what about ism you know all that sort of stuff to me that's beside the point I think the American public understand what happened and the question for them is is it enough to overturn an election, and do we have to do it now when we're right around the corner from one? I think that's what where we're coming down to. So I, and just, I assume everyone here is very up to speed. You're a well-informed group. But just to make sure, obviously, the question that was at issue here in these hearings was, uh, did President Trump uh, dangle the possibility of a White House visit or withhold military aid to Ukraine? Uh, in order to pressure President Zelensky to uh, launch an investigation into a Ukrainian energy company uh, that was tied to uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. I think we've got it all out there. Is there anything I missed, yeah, well, Jonathan I mean, Adler? I'd characterize it a little bit differently. Okay. I, mean, I, I should say I, I start from a somewhat different place in terms of how I come to these issues, um, um, uh, but I end up in a similar place, but a slightly different route. I, I don't I don't, I think some of these issues get complicated because um, the president does have uh, a wide degree of discretion in terms of how foreign policy is exercised. And some of the things that, that are alleged are things that we know presidents have done and are close to the line. So for example, we know of cases where the United States has said to countries, yeah, there's aid that we're supposed to give you, but we want to vote on a UN resolution a particular way before that money gets released, and or we want other sorts of things. And we know that happens. And I think it's overreach to claim that that would, would be impeachable. I think the key things here are, one, as has come out, um, the real ask wasn't even the investigation. It was the announcement of an investigation, which 
you know, if, if what we really were concerned about was was corruption in Ukraine, the best way to deal with that is have the State Department and or the FBI or whomever uh, uh, communicate with their their parallel folks over in Ukraine and and not worry about whether or not it's on cable news and requiring um, the prime minister of uh, a foreign country to, as apparently was the case, um, uh, announce on a cable news interview that an investigation has begun would have nothing to do with that, um, and I think that 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 brings out the fact that this was polit this wasn't hardball diplomacy. This was about using the, in the 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 power over foreign policy to advance personal political purposes over those of the nation. Which again, I think also understanding it that way helps us exclude something that again we know occurs, right? Presidents who are up for re-election when they're in conducting foreign policy on the margin do make decisions of what they can or can't do before the election versus after the election and so on. I mean, we know that happens. Um, the, the, the point about why this I think potentially and certainly in my view crosses the line is because um, uh, the focus was not on the substance but on the political value. Two, I will admit the idea that the president is concerned about corruption, particularly um, the children of political figures taking advantage of their parents' prominence to advance themselves economically <laughs> is not very credible. <laughs> um, um, the other thing I, I want to say, though, and, and this is a, this is what I think has been a strategic mistake by the Democrats. I think it's something that that distinguishes this from what we see in terms of the way impeachment was presented and developed in Watergate. Um, um, uh, something that I think the Independent Council tried to do in the context of Clinton, but perhaps was not successful at. At, at doing something that I think was done in a lot of the British impeachments. You know, go back and read Edmund Burke's uh, 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 a case against Warren Hastings. It wasn't like, oh, he did one bad thing, right? It was a pattern that showed that not only had abuses occurred, but, there, but, but indicated that there is every reason to believe that those abuses will continue to occur. And so you can't wait till an election. You can't allow the political process to play out. You need to, you know, engage in, in, in this some admittedly extreme act of political hygiene to safeguard the country. And so while I think that what we know about with Ukraine is a betrayal of the sort that would that, that, that constitutes high crime and misdemeanor, my own view is, is that there are other things that should be part of the conversation. And there are some that are hard, particularly given the fact that the administration has not been particularly cooperative. And there are some that will take time in terms of needing to go to court and issue subpoenas and so on. But there are also some that I think are, are relatively clear. So my favorite from, my favorite, not, <laughs> use that word advisedly. Um, you can most, say favorite, that's the, okay. The, <laughs> the, the clearest um, from the Mueller report um, involves um, something that, that, that the White House has not disputed. Um, uh, which is, um, according to the Mueller report, uh, the president told the White House counsel to create a fraudulent document for the purposes of misleading investigators. And the reason I highlight that is because there's an interesting debate about whether or not, say, firing the head of the FBI can ever be obstruction of justice when ultimately the president decides what things get enforced and what, what criminal prosecutions are undertaken. And so... There is an interesting debate to be had about, about what type of intent would you need to be able to show to say that the firing of the head of the FBI is, is, is impeachable. But there is no question that telling a subordinate 
to create false information, create false documents for the purposes of misleading an investigation, um, there's no theory under which that's part of the president's inherent Article II power. Right? So there are some other things out there that, are, that I think are, are obvious and that I think would help show that this isn't about, you know, the president had a bad week uh, in dealing with Ukraine. This is about a, a, a series of events, and, and potentially there are things related to emoluments, related to the Doral G7s. I mean, there, there are other things we could put on the table, but, but I think a, as a matter of, hist uh, of, of how we've seen impeachments used historically and a matter of dealing with the political issue, we want to think about this as individual cases as examples of a broader pattern that require not waiting for an election. Um, and I'm not sure whether politically that case has been made. I think, I think if one looks at the evidence, I think that case can be made. But I, you know, whether, you know, well, according I, to Wisconsin I, polls I saw on TV tonight, that case has not been made politically. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you about that. Uh, I don't think enough people in diners have been interviewed yet for us to have an answer to that. Um, it sounds like, you know, when we often talk about investigations, people are looking for what's the smoking gun? What's the one piece of evidence that proves this was really, really, really bad. It sounds like what you're saying is, why don't we look at the totality of the evidence, look at a, a number of different instances where the president may have abused his power or crossed the line in what he can do, and, and look at the picture as a whole. Is that kind of what you're saying here? It is. I mean, I, you know, I think, I mean, I, I forget how long the Watergate hearings went on for, but a while, right? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't one week. Um, and, and, you know, there were, there were prior investigations. There was, a, there was the ability to build on some prior information. Um, because impeachment, as we've both said, is a, is a big deal, right? I mean, taking, getting rid of the president, um, removing them from office, even if they are being replaced by someone of their own party, is still a big deal. Uh, and, um, Politically, it's hard to argue that you do that because of one really bad act. Um, at least uh, one really bad act of what we've seen thus far. Um, but when you can put together a bunch of acts, um, you know, in Nixon's case, there were tapes. Um, you know, in this case, we, we, it's not clear if we have tapes. There might be. Um, Michael Cohen, I guess, had tapes. Um, uh, <laughs> apparent, but, but there are th there are enough things that we that we could put them together. But it's it's a it's a slow process. It's a serious process. It's a process that's not well tailored to cable news. All right, this is the first cable news uh, impeachment. In, uh, you know, uh, so I think I think that makes it more difficult. Well, and and to be clear about where we are in the process too. We're not at the point yet of the House voting on articles of impeachment, let alone no. having the Senate try a case no. and, and make a decision of, of whether to convict or acquit. Um, but we have heard uh, numerous witnesses come through the past two weeks and, and testify to what they knew about this Ukraine affair. Uh, Jim Robinault, let me ask you, how well do you think the House Democrats who are leading this process, how well do you think they made their case in the past two weeks? Do you think they laid out a good a case to the American people that was convincing and explained why they took this so seriously? Well, I, you know, I, I think they did an excellent job of putting on the witnesses. But here's the problem, and, and I wrote about this in the Washington Post on Sunday. Um, what we've got here is Watergate in reverse. That is that Watergate starts with John Dean breaking with the president and then 
he testifies. So this is June of 1973. And remember, Nixon had been reelected by a huge landslide in November. Everybody knew about Watergate. Nobody cared. They wanted us to get out of Vietnam with honor. They reelected Nixon. McGovern went down. Uh, and then we get into the next year, 73. So we're in June of 73. John Dean comes forward and testifies in detail. He is on the television for an entire week, being uh, reads an 80,000-word statement. It takes him an entire day. Real detail. There's a cancer growing on your presidency. If we don't stop it, your presidency is going to be killed by it. And I'm going to have to go to jail, he tells Nixon, in this very famous... Uh, encounter that he has with them. So he's laid it out as cleanly as can be. He's he's believable, but the fact of the matter is that barely moved public opinion at that point. They didn't know who to believe, Nixon or whatever. John happened to say, um, I might have been taped in one of my meetings with Nixon. That leads two weeks later to them discovering the tapes and then the fight for the tapes. So we then go through an entire year from June of 73 to July of 74, where there's the fight for the tapes, it's the Saturday Night Massacre, the firing of Archibald Cox, drip, 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 and then it comes out, the, the tapes come out. And one tape in particular is known as the smoking gun tape because it's Nixon within a week of the break-in saying to his chief of staff, tell the CIA to tell the FBI to stop the investigation, okay, to cut it off. That's the smoking gun tape. It showed two things. Nixon was involved in the cover-up, which he denied, and he was leading it um, directly himself within a week of the break-in. So that's Watergate. It, it's drip, drip, drips, and then boom, this big moment where Nixon has proved to be a liar. Two weeks later, he resigns. Here, the opposite has happened. The smoking gun transcript came out when, when Trump released the July 25 transcript. That's the smoking gun. He's sitting there asking on tape, investigate the Bidens, I need you to do us a favor. And we are then having what the story that we know confirmed by all these witnesses. They're all saying, yeah, that's what happened, essentially. So there's no like big boom at the end of it. Like, imagine this process where we have all these witnesses come forth and then, then this transcript comes forth. And everybody's like, wow, that's the moment. That's the smoking gun. The problem is we had it in reverse. The smoking gun came out first. It's literally as if Nixon would have, at the beginning of Watergate, said, yeah, I did it. Um, I, I paid hush money. Um, these guys were great Americans. You know, they were doing this for me. They were loyal Americans, and I should pay their attorney's fees for this. I mean, he literally. And by the way, here's the tape. Listen to it. You know, that's the tape, and I did it. And I'm, you know, I think it's great. I have the right to do all this stuff. You know, it just is, it didn't, it built back then to the aha moment. Here we had the aha moment at the beginning, and everybody's saying, yeah, okay, so he did it. And everybody's just confirming now what we already know, and that's the problem. There's not enough time to change public opinion because public opinion is already set hmm. in where it is. Well, I, I want to ask now about House Republicans and the role that they have played in this in this process the past two weeks. And Jonathan Adler, <laughs> you're making a face. I'm going to put this question to you. You know, more or less, they've been in the position, kind of, of defense attorney. They're cross-examining their witnesses. Uh, you know, trying to point out what they see to be inconsistencies in the testimony. Uh, what is the defense that you think 
uh, House Republicans could mount to this, and do you think that they have done that in the past two weeks? Um, so I'll start the back for the last part first. No, um, uh, I mean. It, it, my wife says I overanalyze these sorts of things because, you know, I'm a law professor and you want to break everything down. And so I'm, you know, trying to explain why as an analytical matter the whistleblower is irrelevant because, like, the tips through that that leads to the initiation of an investigation, if the initial tip isn't necessary to make the case at trial, it doesn't matter who that tipster was and where it came from, whatever else, because you don't need it anymore. And that's, you know, so as a legal matter, like, all this talk about the whistleblower, it doesn't matter because we have... The transcript, we have however many people testified this week telling us all the things in greater detail than the whistleblower could, so the whistleblower is unnecessary. So I, I but then I have to step back and say, look, the, the, what the House Republicans are doing is not trying to make a legal defense, but a political defense. And are they succeeding? Um, perhaps, um, in that um, the president's base does not seem to be moved. I mean, my own view... Um, is that, uh, you know, so there were comments that Congressman Will Hurd um, uh, made today. Will Hurd's a, a congressman from Texas who unfortunately is not running for re-election, uh, who is not a fan of the president's. Uh, and what he said was, this was bad, the call was bad. Um, I don't, I'm not convinced it justifies removing a president from office uh, a year before an election. Um, and so he will probably vote against the impeachment resolution. But he's not trying to pretend that this is the way that, that our nation should conduct foreign affairs and that this is what we should expect of someone who's president of the United States. Uh, I think um, the other thing that I think is, is that, that House Republicans have done and have done somewhat successfully, uh, which is kind of what our political culture feeds on right now, is find the flaws of the other guy. Um, right? I mean, we can all admit there is probably no good reason why Hunter Biden was on the board of Burisma. Um, we all, we all know that, uh, whether or not that was a good or bad thing, it has nothing to do with whether or not what the president did was appropriate. An example that I give that I, is, is dangerous to give probably in Cleveland is, you know, um, uh, whatever terrible things you may think Mason Rudolph may have done, and even if you believe like me that he probably should have been suspended, let's face it, Miles Garrett did need to be suspended. Whether it was the right number of games or not, we can debate, right? It's just like whether or not presidents should be removed from office is maybe a prudential judgment, but the you reality just lost is... the audience. I know. Yeah. Um, uh, um, but, you know, given that kind of, you know, uh, well, um, we're talking about people that are j usually on my side of the aisle, I, I figure I can kind of you know, point to my own side's failings. Um, but so, I mean, but, it, but politically it's very effective, right? Um, that it's politically effective to say, well, look at Hunter Biden and look at Joe Biden and look at uh, the Clintons and look at this. And that's effective um, politically. Uh, it's, it's irrelevant to the merits, well, what um, about this whole, I mean, offering an almost alternate reality, you know, with the uh, allegations of this of this crowd strike firm being involved in Ukraine, which um, um, one of the witnesses today, uh, Dr. Hill, said is, is, you know, bogus and has no merit. Offering this alternate reality, do you think that is, is a, an effective defense? Apparently. Um, <laughs> I mean, the president believed it. Um, from what has come out is apparently there are some people in the president's inner circle that feed his 
tendency to believe outlandish stories that also coincide with his political interests. We, you know, it's not irrelevant that he, you know, was one of the last people to believe that um, uh, uh, President Obama was not uh, a U.S. citizen, and you know, went on, you know, long past there was, you know, he was he was still saying, oh, you know, show us the birth certificate. So I mean, and you know, normally we would hope that a president has advisors that you know, kind of help clarify what sources of information are, are credible and what aren't. And, and that was not done successfully here. And, um, you know, it appears that that is, um, it, that is a, and I will say one other thing, and there's some news that broke tonight. Um, there were things that were done in late 2016 that were almost certainly wrong, and based on a report from CNN this evening related to some of the FISA applications of Carter Page, who was an advisor to the Trump campaign, um, were possibly illegal. Um, there's a leak from the Inspector General report that will be out in a couple weeks uh, looking at, at that. And I think that, on the one hand, the, the unwillingness to kind of acknowledge that, hey, look, there, there, are, there are other lesser bad things that other people did. Um, uh, is, is is a political problem, but I think those sorts of facts enable House Republicans to try and play defense by saying, "Look at the other guy." And again, I, I don't find that appealing. I think I think it is possible that that more than one person may have done something wrong, and all should be held responsible for the level of the things they did wrong, and the fact that you know some FBI agent may have. Um, a f uh, uh, illegally altered uh, a document after the fact related to a FISA application means that FBI agent should be prosecuted or what have you. And if the president has done a lot of the things that I believe he has done, then that would justify impeachment. The, you can hold both of those ideas as being true at the same time. But our political process, our political environment make, puts us in these tribal camps where all we're worried about is what the other tribe's failings are and we never admit that there might be some people on our side that did bad things too. So uh, I want to transition to questions uh, in a second here. And uh, how are we doing this, Stephanie? Are you going to have a microphone walking around? or? Oh, microphone's right here. So if you've got questions, you can line up at the microphone. Um, so think about what you want to ask. Get ready to ask it. I want to put one more question over to you, uh, Jim Robinald, and that is yeah. about public opinion. You've touched on this before. Yeah. You said that it seems like public opinion is not ha does not seem to have been moved all that much by this. Does it matter? How, in what ways does public opinion matter when it comes to you know how Congress litigates this issue of whether the president broke the law? I, public opinion is everything, and it's the reason that none of the uh, Republicans are standing up and saying this is wrong. Uh, it it should not happen. It should not have happened. Um, I think in 2016, from that point forward, people were so befuddled by what happened. You know, they the politicians themselves are very scared of making the wrong move right now. And so, I mean, I grew up in Lima, Ohio. And the, if we were having this program in a tavern in Lima, Ohio, there would be a very different view of what's been happening, I think, than probably what is the view of most people here. There is this tribalism concept. There's also this really powerful concept that we get our news from um, the places where we want to get our news. And, you know, so we are very divided by our media in terms of what we take in. Back during Watergate, it was CBS, ABC, NBC, that was it. Um, so I, I think that public opinion has a ton to do with it. 
Um, and I think what we're going to see here is uh, public opinion not really changing very much because, as I say, I think people are already in their tracks, and it's going to be really hard to dislodge them at this point. And and does public opinion matter as insofar as you know the outcome of an impeachment hearing would be? Are you saying public opinion matters because it would? potentially put pressure on Republican senators to, to change their votes. Yeah, I mean, look at Portman right now. He's, he's, he's a, being an enabler of Trump, and I'm confident he doesn't believe what he did was right. But, he said but, that it was wrong. Yeah, but he's not going to stand up and still vote him out of office at this point because he sees that as a death knell for him in, in this state because public opinion... Um, and it, and by the way, it's why, you know, Sherrod Brown is also talking about it, but in a whisper, I, I don't hear him really out there forcefully uh, taking up the, the cudgels at this point. So, you know, it's, it has a huge impact. These guys just see their political futures as dead if they make the wrong move here. So we do have some questions, and I'm very excited to turn this over to you and give you a chance to grill our, our two panelists here. Um, so thanks very much. Yeah. Um, well, before the question, we also had NPR and PBS, and, and we do have an idea stream host here. Um, so during the Watergate era, so just a shout out to, to PBS and NPR back in those days. Um, uh, my question um, has to do with balance of power, and I'm, I guess I'm, I'm less interested, but would welcome your thoughts on, on the strategic decision not to push um, the subpoenas to the executive branch. Um, but from a going forward perspective, what do you think as lawyers and law professors um, would have happened if uh, that had been tested in court? And do you think it should have or still should be tested in court? Not specifically for this particular fact pattern, but, but just to establish Subpoenas what should be Subpoenas for witnesses or documents? Um, either or both. And from who? I mean, it gets... It, 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 gets they are, it is being tested yeah. in the courts right now, actually. Some of it is, yeah. yeah. It, gets, it gets very complicated very quickly, and, and there are very few cases. There are, you know, the, in the Supreme Court, there's like, I mean, for, for all practical purposes, there's one, maybe two, if you want to stretch a couple. Um, there are some lower court opinions. We don't... Because typically, um, especially when it's legislative versus the executive branch, both sides are afraid of pushing their claims too aggressively and losing. And that means you don't only lose for that case, but you lose all for the, lose, lose for the future cases. So throughout our history, you've often seen the executive branch and the legislative branch, when push comes to shove, come up with some sort of deal about documents. And that hasn't happened here. And for whatever reason, the House was slow to play its best hand um, on seeking documents and now may not, you know, may not seek to have John Bolton testify, for example, who might have given us a John Dean-like moment um, based on what some other folks have said. Um, and as a, you know, as a strategic matter, I'm not sure that was wise. I think as a, as a, as a way, as a, in order to settle some of these questions, I think it would be useful. I mean, we have been, the, the way our politics has been going, even apart from the impeachment question, the degree of conflict we've seen between the legislative and executive branches over things like document requests and basic oversight has been getting worse. Um, recall during the Bush administration, the fights that did go to court, not to the Supreme Court, but to the lower courts over documents related to the firing of US attorneys. 
um, and assertions of executive privilege and and the like there. Uh, during the Clinton administration, there were a lot of uh, privileged assertions related to the impeachment investigations. During the Obama administration, uh, members of the administration were held in contempt of Congress, admittedly on partisan votes, but for refusal to turn over documents related to things like the Fast and Furious scandal. And um, so in my view, it would be nice if we had a little more certainty about how much uh, the legislature can turn to the courts to enforce these document demands and to what extent the legislature has to use its own inherent powers, whether it's power of the purse or its inherent contempt power. Um, I would like more clarity there. I, I, I'm not sure precisely what we get, and I worry that if you get that clarity only in a context like this, you might not get the best answer um, because it's just, you know, we, we need the answer for the day-to-day -day legislative executive interaction, not the, just impeachment. In, in this case, I mean, the whole question of subpoenas against the executive goes back to United States versus Nixon and the executive privilege. I, I, as a separate branch of government, don't have to respond to you, Congress, a separate branch of government, because I'm, I'm my own branch of government, and you're different, and I don't have to respond to you, and I've got executive privilege. And that's been, you know, in United States v. Nixon, the court actually decided that the third branch, the judiciary, could get the tapes uh, from the president because a grand jury was looking for him, and that's what was upheld there. So. That's all that U.S. v. Nixon stands for. And the, the strategic decision that uh, the Intelligence Committee made and the House Judiciary Committee made is they are fighting these subpoenas right now in the courts, but they are not going to wait for that fight because they know that will take a long time. So they're saying if you don't comply with this subpoena and if you don't give us these documents, it's another article of impeachment uh, against you. And that is true in Nixon, the third article of impeachment was Nixon ignoring subpoenas. Um, so that's what they've decided to do, and that will be an article of impeachment, and Actually, how, how they've addressed it. There are two cases that are in the court right now that are both kind of really interesting. Um, two very different judges yeah. have them, too. Uh, there's a case involved, well, the ones I'm, th I'm thinking of the two Mazars cases for, uh, as an initial matter. There's, there's, the, uh, there's the other one, too. Yeah. Um, so one is the uh, district attorney of New York, um, Cyrus Vance, is seeking documents from uh, from Mazars, from uh, the president's accountants. Uh, I would be shocked if the Supreme Court touches that case because um, the 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 president's lawyers' claims are that uh, not merely that the president is immune from prosecution at the state level uh, while the president is is in office, which which is a serious claim. Um, because we can all imagine, especially in a hyperpartisan time, a state attorney general or a state, a local DA of the opposite party wanting to harass or go after a president of the opposite party using that power. So, but, but the president's position is not merely you can't prosecute, but you can't investigate. And that, um, no, yeah, I, I can't imagine the Supreme Court's going to want to touch, uh, especially since the document request is not to the president or to the White House, but to. Um, the accountants. There's a parallel case that's, um, that the Supreme Court might take up. They've stayed the mandate in this case, uh, also involving Mazars, and it involves the House subpoena of similar documents from the president's accountants. And there, there's, there's an issue that um, I think people have been too dismissive of, which is how do we evaluate what Congress is doing when it demands private documents, because these are private documents. They are you know, held by, by the president's accountants. And do we care about how the 
the Congress characterizes its request. And the reason that matters is because usually we think of Congress as being a legislature, legislating, drafting laws, and getting information it needs to figure out what kinds of laws to draft. We don't think of Congress as being in the in the in, as as being a judicial entity, and it is prohibited from from things that are either retroactive ex post facto laws or bills of attainder, things that are targeted at a specific individual, uh, even when using its legislative legislative power. So when Congress asks demands for specific documents about a specific person, our atten our antenna should go up. On the other hand, Congress has this impeachment power. And, and so when it comes to executive branch officials, Congress does have the ability to investigate a specific individual. That's kind of an exception from this general rule that you can't target the individual. What happens in the Mazars case is that the, the documents were demanded by the House Oversight Committee. And when the House Oversight Committee wrote a memo explaining why it needed those documents, it said, oh, all we're doing is investigating what sort of legislation we might need to protect against corruption. And given how broad their document request was, uh, to listen to the oral argument in that case, all of the judges were concerned about the, the breadth of the subpoena. Two of the justices on the uh, judges on the panel upheld the subpoena nonetheless. One dissented, and the one that dissented basically said, "Look, the wolf has to come as a wolf. If what you are doing is inquiring into the president for purposes purposes of impeachment, you've got to say that. You've got to you've got to engage the political feedback mechanisms of being honest and open that that's what you're doing. And if you're not doing that." In her view, then no, you can't get those documents, and um, that's a serious argument. I, I, you know, I'm I'm not sure if I agree with it. In the end of the day, I'm not sure if I would would rule that way if I were a judge, but it is a serious argument. And if you go back and look at the way the founders expected um, the impeachment process to engage the body politic, I mean, there's there's language in 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 Federal 65 where Hamilton talks about how this is the kind of thing that everyone's going to care about and we should be worried about, about it just becoming a factional dispute and that it's just a question of which faction is more powerful. Right? I mean, and that should worry us, right? So the idea that we want to have this, it's this and, and the court has stayed that subpoena, enforcement of the, of, of the mandate to enforce, stayed the mandate that would enforce that subpoena until I think January 3rd, I think it is. Yeah. And they might take that case, and that that'll be a really interesting case. Um, uh, and I'm not, you know, I have no idea how they'll come out. Okay, want to get to our next question here? Thank you. Thank you. I have basically a comment and a big question. Some of us were in engineering school and we're old enough to remember the Nixon impeachment inquiries, and I can remember when everybody laughed. I want to make one thing perfectly clear: I saw that live on television, <laughs> going to an alternate. Fact universe, as half the people would say, is under President uh, Clinton, I believe, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was passed. We've all seen the tape of Vice President Biden, while he was in office, saying, I've got a billion dollars here. Fire the prosecutor, or I'll put it back in my pocket. Six hours. He was not, yeah, six hours. He was not investigated. Going back to Lord Acton, and absolute power corrupts, or power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, I have a few questions to ask. Number one, should Biden have been investigated? Number two, is Trump looking at Biden for violating that act, and should Biden be exempt from being investigated because he's the candidate? And number three, if Biden wins, and the Republicans take over the House, could they impeach him before he's in office, 
or on January 21st. <laughs> and this is what you get for letting an engineer into politics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who wants to take that one? Jonathan uh, Adler. Also, I mean, I, 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 um, so as a general matter, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of, I'm going to do these out of order. As a general matter, I don't think you can impeach someone for things they did before they were in office. So, for example, um, uh, if one believes that the Trump campaign did things um, that were or, were illegal or represented a betrayal of trust in the efforts to solicit foreign assistance during the campaign, um, some of those things may be criminal. I happen to think that um, one of the president's sons in particular um, was the beneficiary of Robert Mueller not wanting to indict the president's son. Um, because I think the case could have been made, um, but are impeachable because there's no betray there's n there isn't the betrayal of trust that is is require of of someone holding office. Biden's a weird case because the the allegation would be um, of things he did in office, and um, but usually we think of impeachment as this act of kind of political hygiene, and so the idea of 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 reaching back to. Uh, is something that would be quite unusual. Um, I don't believe that what Biden did was unlawful and the sort of thing that's impeachable. Just as I don't believe, as I mentioned before, the mere the mere use of funding for hardball diplomacy in ways that Congress did not expressly authorize, I don't think that's impeachable or even illegal, even uh, even though Congress hasn't authorized it. And it's something that we know that the executive branch does all the time. Um, uh, the issue would be, uh, could the claim be made that Biden did this for his personal benefit as opposed to some policy uh, or, or, or political priority? From what I understand, I don't think that case could be made. If it could be, you know, then sure, we should we should investigate it. I, I um, you know, I, I I tend to think that you know anyone who's if there's if there are credible claims that someone's broken the law they should be investigated and I, I would apply that to anyone I, I don't think that the uh, lack of discretion that Biden may have have shown by making comments publicly about the way the Obama administration was approaching certain foreign policy questions would rise to that um, if there were actual reason to believe that he was doing that to advance his son's economic interests, that would be different. But from my understanding, that case has not been ma has not been made. Yeah, and I would just I would say that um, for all of us to understand this, you have to get into kind of the Byzantine politics of the Ukraine. Um, what's happened to them, you know, the legacy of the Soviet Union, corruption, how it was handled, how these prosecutors came about. The guy that Biden was going after, Shokin, I think was his name, was a guy who was totally corrupt and a guy who actually was not looking at Burisma at the time. And part of the problem, I think, was that he wasn't being effective enough in going after corruption. So it's kind of an odd argument that when uh, Biden, who is doing this along with all of our allies, saying this guy is too corrupt to be the prosecutor, that he's got to get out of there, that one of the things he's not being really aggressive about is going after Burisma. Um, so it's a weird argument to say that he was trying to get this guy out to stop investigating him. He wasn't actively investigating him at that time. I think those are the facts. And I think the entire international community supported getting this guy out of there. So I think, you know, you really got to dig deep into all these how many presidents they had and who these prosecutors were and what the the way they did business over there. But I I think it's going to be um, 
it's already been investigated multiple times and that people are saying there's not much there, but it takes all of us to really look at the facts and look at the timing and so forth, which I don't think has been done very well, frankly, yet. I was going to make one other broader point, which I think is, is important. I think it's something that I, that I think when you look at the, some of these debates and discussions is something that we don't, rec a distinction we don't recognize enough. There is a legitimate concern that our, over the last 15 years, we have moved in the direction of trying to criminalize the seamy side of politics as usual. Uh, and I think some of those complaints are valid, and I think that some folks who are more sympathetic to the president than I am ha are able to make that complaints about some things that have been said about or some allegations that have been made ab uh, about the president. Um, uh, and we sh and, and you know politics often has a seamy underside, and um, you know it's regrettable, but it's not something we should criminalize. I believe that can be true. And it is also true that the current president crossed certain lines that extend far beyond the criminalization of ordinary politics uh, and that reach the sorts of things that are fundamental abuses of power that the impeachment clause was designed to protect us against. So the point is not that no one's ever, ever made an exaggerated accusation against the president. I'm sure lots of people have. It's just also true that some of the bad accusations against the president appear to be true as well. And insofar as they are true, that should not. Um, uh, so you know, I, I don't think that concluding that some of the things the president has done means that one is saying, oh, well, you, know, you have to impeach half the people in Washington. I, I actually think we can draw distinctions. Um, it just sometimes requires a little more care than you see on cable news shows. But by the way, buckle up, because <laughs> This is going to be the issue in the trial. Lindsey Graham just today right. said he's going to start this investigation of Hunter Biden. And frankly, Joe Biden did none of us any favors by not policing his son. And, you know, nobody can agree that somebody should get $50,000 a month for nothing. And uh, yeah. <laughs> but who wouldn't take it if you're offering? <laughs> so so we're going we're gonna to hear a lot about that in the trial. And half of the trial in the Senate is going to be uh, Hunter Biden being questioned by people. I was going to say, I do some energy loss, so I'm, I'm happy to be on the board. <laughs> uh, we've got another question here. Yes, thank you so much. So I'm an un, not an engineer. I'm a teacher, which is probably worse. But um, to, one is more of a comment, but I would, I would um, welcome your comments. And the second is a question. Um, we talked about um, Hastings in India and where the, uh, the source of impeachment came from. But it was interesting because one of the reasons impeachment came about was not only because of what he had done, but what they were afraid he was going to yes. do. Right. So in light of the president on the, on the White House lawn asking China to look, at it, look into it, I wondered how much that played into it. Um, and secondly, um, very simply to, to Jim's comment earlier about three channels, how much do you think this is theater? I mean, a lot of it's theater, um, and the president. And so, what do you think that'll play into? The, the president's whole? good at it, right? I mean, whatever you think about the president, like him, not like him, like his politics. I, you know, he's the performative reality TV aspect of politics. He's apparently good at. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, but I think the point about about this remedy not merely being backward looking, but also forward looking, is a, is a very important one, and it's one you know one we need to remember. And one of the reasons that that um, 
Don Ayer and, and Stuart Gerson and Marissa Malik and, and Carrie Cordero and, and George Conway and I and, and some others put checks and balances together was precisely because we were concerned about rule of law and standing up for certain bright lines that we think should not be transgressed without regard for, for a partisan advantage. And, you know, if you look at the various statements we've put out, um, you know, some of the things that tend to really, uh, really, that we think have tended to really merit condemnation are things that, that simultaneously relate to things that are occurring in the present, but also indicating that this is somehow, in the view of some, the new normal or acceptable, right? So, you know, as I mentioned before, impeachment's not about the president in one bad thing on one bad day or had a bad week. It's about we have evidence of specific conduct that is that is emblematic of conduct we have reason to believe is occurring regularly in ways we may not be aware of that we aren't always going to be able to catch and are concerned if it is not corrected, if it is not stopped, if it is not punished and prevented, will continue and get worse. And the fact that the president felt able, empowered, whatever, to say, you know, in public, foreign countries should think it's open season to try and influence our elections is horrifying, right? And is unpatriotic and, in my view, a betrayal of trust. And it, it should sadden us that any political figure could get to the point where, they, where that political figure thinks not only that they could do that in private, but say that publicly. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, that tribal lines are such that people don't feel willing to say that about folks that are and, supposed to And by to the way, no, no coincidence that the July 25 call was the day after Mueller testified. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And had, had seemed so like he wasn't really there, like there was something wrong with him. And he was emboldened, and the next day, that's what happens. And the, the, the founders talked about this. They said if somebody gets into office through bribery, don't think that they're not going to do it again. Um, that's the problem, and that's why you have to be able to impeach them uh, to get them out of there, because if they've duped the people once, they can dupe them a second time. Um, and that's literally what they talked about. So they had, they had us in mind back then. <laughs> Another question. Yes, thank you. Well, this isn't my question, but the memo was released immediately after they found out, A, there was a whistleblower, yeah. and B, they found out Congress knew about the whistleblower. Yeah. It was the next day. Yeah. So the release of the funds also sure. was a timing issue. But Pure coincidence, I'm sure. <laughs> so my, my question is about the, con the legal concept of bribery and attempted bribery. So, you know, if I try to shoot you and I don't succeed, I can be convicted of attempted murder. But in some crimes, the words are the crime. And so if I'm an elected official and I say, here, I'll, I'll give you this public contract and you build an addition to my house, if I don't actually give you the contract and you don't actually build the, you know, build the addition because I get caught, the words themselves, I think, I'm still able to be convicted of bribery. And it seems like people keep talking about, well, the aid was released or... And so just legally, does bribery require... Just the words or the, yes, the you action? don't you don't you don't need fulfillment. Uh, I mean, uh, two two points. One, you're absolutely correct. Bribery is the sort of crime that you don't need it to have actually manifested. Um, I mean, in a lot of contexts, we 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 often treat attempt as equivalent to the actual crime uh, in terms of in terms of the punishment and so on. I mean, that's that's a com that's common in the criminal law. 
um, because it's the act, not your success, that we're punishing. But bribery incorporates that. But the broader point is um, we should not think about this inquiry as needing to find a violation of a statute. Um, the impeachment clause was written at a time at which there was hardly any federal criminal law. And that didn't mean there wouldn't be grounds for impeachment. It meant we understood that bribery was symbolic. What bribery and treason had in common is they both were understood to involve an individual that was uh, an officer that was of the country in whom great trust has been placed, abusing that trust for their own personal advantage. And so, I you know while I think the the, the elements of bribery have been met here, I don't I don't think that's really the way we should think about impeachment. Right? It's not about could, if Donald Trump weren't in office, could he be convicted in a court of law? The question is, do we have evidence, uh, sufficient evidence to show that he was engaged in these sorts of transactions or attempting to engage in the sorts of transactions that would place his personal interest ahead of that of the nation? And if we conclude the answer is yes, particularly in something like the conduct of foreign affairs, then we have a potentially impeachable offense. Although that politically, not legally, if he has committed a crime, that carries, I think, more weight with much... Yes, although we had a president that clearly committed a federal crime, uh, and in my view, a very serious and grave one, who we impeached but did not remove. Right? Bill Clinton committed perjury uh, in a sexual harassment suit designed to advance his own personal interest ahead of the interest of someone who had a legal right to have her claims fairly adjudicated in a court of law. And right, we have to remember, and, and there were serious allegations, although never proven, of obstruction of justice in some of the other things that were alleged but could never be proven to have occurred in relation to that litigation as well. Um, so, as a you know, we, we our, our, our most recent history is we had a president that committed a serious federal crime, one that caused him to lose his law license, one that caused him to pay, I think, a quarter of a million dollar fine or something of that nature, a quarter of a million dollar judgment. Um, and as a, and we concluded that that was not well that that while it was impeachable although only what I think eight Democrats crossed over to vote in favor of the article mm -hmm. it was very only a handful and um, he was largely acquitted on party lines. one one side story on this attempt issue when Richard Nixon came back to the White House this is the great thing about the Watergate tapes you can really just go into the Oval Office and, and be sitting there <laughs> um, but he he literally is talking with Haldeman about you remember they called it a third-rate burglary. Um, and Nixon says, third-rate burglary, it's not, it's not even that. It's an attempted third-rate. They didn't get anything. You know, they, um, and so he was immediately saying all these things like, you know, it was just an attempt. You know, they didn't, they didn't succeed. And that's what we should be saying. And he's a lawyer, by the way. I mean, um, but, but I agree. I mean, I think this is, it's a political question and the graveness of the assault on our form of government is what's at stake. That's why I think this, what's going on right now is very serious. What Nixon did was very serious, and why I think most people thought what Bill Clinton did was a personal problem, not an assault on the, on the, uh, the people and the government and so forth. Although it was, I agree, a very serious crime to commit perjury. You had brought up Hunter Biden, which I wasn't going to bring up in this thing. But since you did, Burisma did go to the State Department. There are emails about this stating, 
we want you, State Department, to do X, Y, Z. And oh, by the way, we have Hunter Biden and Christopher Hines, who happen to have been the stepson of John Curry, on our board. Now, Caesar's wife, in my opinion, should be above suspicion. Okay? I mean, that's just a given. Yeah. My question is, you know, Professor, you had sort of thrown out uh, the Johnson impeachment, you know, after the Civil War with the Radical Republicans and stuff. However, there was a crime about the um, federal, um, which we'll call it, uh, uh, not being able to fire a uh, federal employee who had tenure, tenure, federal right. employee tenure law. Well, that law and although that was, afterwards, it was declared unconstitutional. Right. But that was the underlining uh, crime. There was an underlying crime with Watergate, the third-rate attempted break-in, which is a great line. Um, there was a crime with regard to Clinton, as was mentioned, the whole uh, perjury. What is the actual crime? And also remember, from a political point of view, people were talking about impeachment on Wednesday after the elections came out. There were signs at, at, at the, the women's rally on that Saturday. Alan Green, or Al Green of Texas said if we don't impeach him, he's going to get reelected. Jerry Nadler overheard on the Acceler train right after the uh, 2018 elections was heard, we can uh, finally impeach that SOB. Um, I mean, from a political point of view, I agree you can impeach a, uh, a ham sandwich, but um, you also need from a, to be successful to be bipartisan. Yes. This has been far from bipartisan. If anything, the vote to continue the inquiry was bipartisan. There were two congressmen, who, Democrats, who voted. And it was entirely, and as you suggested, when you get to the Senate, it's going to be completely bipartisan, excuse me, partisan also. So this whole thing, although there might have been high crimes and misdemeanors, as you suggest, this whole thing is so partisan, just from, and which is one of the things Hamilton complained about, from the, the looking at the future of the country and how things will be going forward, you know, because of this whole process, you know, that's what I'm concerned about, and I'm curious if you are either. So we can put you down as a sure vote for Biden in 2020? <laughs> <laughs> Depends if he's the nominee. You, I mean, I, you, you're, you're raising questions that I think are, are very good questions for everybody to consider because this is, um, as Professor Adler said, this is a really serious, you don't just impeach somebody. Absolutely. Now, my position on it being bipartisan, I wish it were bipartisan, but I think facts should be bipartisan too. And I, I think we are living in a world where um, as was so eloquently said today uh, by Dr. Hill, where, you know, um, truth, as she said, is, you know, a victim here. That I, I just, you know, she said to sit there and say there was, it's a Russian hoax, it's not a Russian hoax. They were involved. Um, so it's just, I, it, it is hard to imagine that we are so, such a divided country that we can't even agree on central facts and central issues that we need to take care of to, to protect our government. 
Um, it's really, it's, it's unimaginable to me. Uh, may, uh, I agree with a lot of your concerns. Um, Donald Trump is blessed by the exuberance and aggressiveness of his enemies. Um, there's no question about that. Uh, there was a, a viral clip that went around on Twitter today of just beginning in January 2017 of, of folks on CNN and MSNBC saying, you know, bombshell, breakthrough, the walls are closing in, this is going to be the, you know, and, and, and it's true, right? Um, and, and, Before, there was um, editorial. So, so I think it's possible, I think it's possible to believe two things at once. There has been a lot of crying wolf about Trump, but there is a wolf, and just as if we remember the story of the problem of the of the boy, of the fable of the boy who cried wolf, is that he cried wolf falsely so many times that when the wolf showed up, he said, "Hey, wolf!" No one believed him, and he gets eaten. And there's a part of me that fears that's what happened. That we we were that 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 politically, so many folks. And again, I, I you know I was I was a never Trumper from the beginning. Um, uh, I didn't vote for him. Um, uh, Neither did I, by the way. Yeah, but um, so you know, I, I was never sympathetic to him. But but I think it's fair to say that you know a lot of people let their distaste for him, let distaste for his character, the way he campaigned, other things, get in the way of their judgment. And uh, a lot of things that could not be substantiated have been said, um, or a lot of things that maybe we just as a country are have gotten past. Right? I mean, I mean. Uh, um, um, and you know, so we don't worry about the fact that a president may have you know been a serial sexual predator. You know, we didn't we didn't remove the last one of those we had and and ignored it. And so we have another one, and people shrug. Uh, so I think I think those are fair points. And and I and I think it's a and I think that when you look at, at Hamilton's concern about impeachment being a, a factional thing, it is legit. I have you know as an academic, I tend to put my political judgment, I try and put it last in the way I think about things, and I try to say, you know, I'm an originalist. Uh, I believe that the meaning of the Constitution was fixed when those words were, were, were put on paper, uh, and that the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors is understood based on what the average person at the time those words were written would have understood them to mean, and they understood that to mean in light of the English tradition and the tradition in the colonies and the debate in the ratifying conventions. And that debate made very clear an actual crime is not required. And the pardon power is the is the is, is the way they discuss the pardon power and how it can be abused is is the is the uh, uh, dispositive point. So while it is true we have been reluctant to we have we have while we have had plenty of presidents that were not good presidents we have been blessed with relatively few that that where we would think that the degree of failings would rise to impeachable, and that's something we you know that's something we've been blessed with. Um, and it's also true we have not felt we've been, not been willing to engage this process without the evidence of actual crimes but again believing that the constitution means what it what the original public meaning of those words is my view is it's not necessary and we look at abuse of trust and I believe that that case can be made I agree that it has not been made very well I believe the games that about you know are we going to authorize the inquiry are we not um, did not serve the cause of making this sort of inquiry a, a less partisan enterprise. I mean, I think there's lots of finger pointing we can do about that, and I don't, I don't know what to do about that. What I can say is, say, as someone that's looked at this history and looks at our understanding and looked at what we know about conduct, 
that that with regard to what we know about occurred with Ukraine, what some of the things that we have every reason to believe occurred with regard to some other things that the president did, like telling Don McGahn to create a false record, um, that that standard has been met, and that there are other areas where, because for understandable reasons, the White House and the president have not been cooperative, we just simply don't know, um, but have reasons to wish we know more. And uh, which again is there, is there, I, I am I am not here to defend the way House Democrats have conducted this inquiry. Um, uh, I am not here to to say this is something that should be a political no brainer. But I but you know based, I am um, <laughs> based on what based on what I've looked at right. Um, I think that the evidence that there is clear evidence of multiple impeachable offenses, and that we are in a situation where. The Senate should have to make the prudential judgment of whether or not it justifies removal on the eve of an election. I think that's ultimately a prudential political call, um, but I but I think it's a serious one, and I and it's something that I would like senators of both parties to engage with the gravity of, of what that entails. And I'm not convinced that they will. Um, uh, yeah, and you know, I I would like I would I'd like to have somebody like you in the Senate making the decision because you seem to be someone who will weigh facts and decide things. I think that's what needs to be done. Here's what's creeping people out. People cannot get over or understand the influence that Mr. Putin seems to have over Mr. Trump. It really is creeping people out. Like, why does he act this way towards Russia? And why is everything so Russia favorable? And are we really going to have a fair election? And I mean, I think that's why impeachment is seen by so many as so important right now because they don't really trust that we're going to have a fair election. Well, the, the Mueller report said there wasn't. Well, yes and no. I mean, yeah. uh, the, the, the Mueller report's a lot more... The Mueller report talks about what we know, and then it tells us what we don't know. We do know there were efforts to coordinate with folks that were pretty clearly foreign agents. And my read of the report is... Don Jr. got real lucky over the Trump Tower meeting. No question. Um, he almost certainly violated federal law there, and um, unless there are exonerating facts that, that Mueller hadn't discovered. There are other things we're just not sure about. Um, uh, but I also tend to think that I, you know, my standard for political figures is not simply don't, don't be criminal. Uh, I mean, I'm, I am, again, being an academic, I can be a little more idealistic than that. Uh, and, you know, the, the things that have occurred since, I mean, you know, going, saying in public, you know, foreign countries, please, I mean, that should, that should horrify us. And if, and if we believe that, that, that members of the Obama administration were doing something tantamount to that, that's something that, without regard for party, we should be willing to condemn. I mean, I think that, that some of Hillary Clinton's history, going all the way back to being the enabler of a serial sexual predator, um, is something that people forgot about. Uh, and people forgot the political effect of that, that it made a lot of the criticisms of Trump during the campaign not resonate in a lot of quarters right. because people said, well, yeah, but we remember her husband, and we remember the Rose Law Firm billing records, and we remember cattle futures, and we remember that just like the just like Trump, you know, Hillary and Bill Clinton's business partners went to jail too. Mm -hmm. And then one of them went to jail for contempt of court because she refused to testify. Um, and then there was the pardon of Mark Rich. I mean, so... You know, yeah, we should be more willing to call out people that we think are on our side, and as a and as a political culture, we do not do that, and that feeds this this sort of problem. And and we've, we've um, but 
I would like to think folks that, you know, kind of are quote unquote my side could get over that enough when the questions are as weighty as they are right now. And that's not a test many folks are, are passing right now. So uh, I do want to release, be able to release our panelists to get another drink, and you certainly will be welcome to continue these conversations as long as we're able to stand in this bar. We'll have one last question here, sir, and then we will um, uh, adjourn. So please, you've got the floor. So uh, during the Clinton impeachment proceedings, there was a lot of contemporaneous talk about censure by the Congress as an alternative to uh, impeachment that would allow each side to go their separate ways, go back to their corners and get their own pound of flesh and tell their constituents that they had gotten what they could. And I remember that there were some serious objections to the constitutionality of, of uh, censure. I guess two questions. One, do you think censure is constitutional if the Congress were to adopt that sort of an alternative? And two, um, if it is, would that be a way for this us, this uh, problem now to be resolved in a fashion that would allow our deeply divided sides to go their separate ways and allow this to be decided by the electorate in 2020. Can I, can I just add one thing to this and then I'll let him answer the question on censure. <laughs> um, there is a really interesting question here about if Trump were impeached and convicted, would he still be able to want, run in 2020. Um, in this whole disqualification issue, it's pretty well established, I think we both agree, that the Senate has to do both uh, conviction, which is automatic removal, but they then have to disqualify. So he could turn around and jump into the uh, primaries and run in 2020. Um, and uh, similar to your question of whether or not censure, is it a way out for the Republicans to say, we're going to convict on principle here that this is bad and should never happen. We don't agree with it, but we're not going to disqualify him from running again. Is that an out for them other than just a, a censure? It's kind of an interesting question. Exactly. We should all know there is a member of Congress um, who was impeached and convicted as a federal judge, but because the Senate did not vote to, to disqualify him from holding future office, he then went back to Florida, ran for office, and won, and Alcee Hastings is still there. Apparently under investigation again, but um, <laughs> um, this is your question. I mean, so so the, the constitutional question on censure. There's two ways of answering it. One is if Congress voted to censure the president, would the president have been censured by Congress? Yes, and um, all of these sorts of questions as as a as a matter in court are what we call political questions, and that generally said. We have nothing to say about this. So there's a case, uh, Walter Nixon versus United States, so it's the other Nixon. Walter Nixon was a judge. He was accused of um, corruption. Uh, he is um, uh, convicted by the Senate and removed. And he uh, filed suits claiming that the Senate, what the Senate did was not an actual trial. And the Supreme Court said, we don't know, not our, not, we, we have nothing to say about that. The Senate decides what constitutes a trial. So Congress could censure. Um, the second question is, would Congress doing so actually be consistent with the constitutional oath that members of Congress take? And I am skeptical. Um, there is an argument that was made during the Clinton impeachment that um, impeachment as it's written in the Constitution, especially since it was separated from the criminal penalties and the bills of attainder that existed in the British tradition, and also because it made clear that you can't do more than remove and disqualify from future office, 
you are merely leaving that person exposed to criminal prosecution separately, there is an argument that that was then understood as an exclusive set of remedies, right? You know, the, the, uh, Congress couldn't condemn the president to doing something other than being removed from office. Um, uh, and so there's an argument that censure is an attempt to impose some sort of alternative punishment, and I'm sympathetic to that argument. Uh, and, and it's something that I think members of Congress have to think about seriously. Last thing I'll say, though, if you look at Clinton, impeachment without removal is kind of like censure, right? It's the House saying, we, we believe there is evidence that something that justifies this, this permanent record is justified. We are now asking the Senate to make the separate choice about whether or not it justifies removal. Uh, I'm not sure if politically we process it quite that way right now, but but to me, that's what impeachment without conviction kind of does. I mean, the bottom line is we are all better off with this issue being decided by an election. We are all better off, uh, and that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, that's what we're faced with. So people have got to start thinking politically about how they're going to get active in the next election to decide this thing because. We can all see what's going to happen, and it's it's um, whether it's going to be some censure or whatever. It, he's not going to be removed by the Senate, and it's going to be decided by an election. I'm very tempted to ask whether we'll be better off if it's decided by an electoral college majority and popular vote minority. Uh, we will have to save that for another city club forum. Thank you so much for being here, for your enthusiasm and involvement. Uh, Jonathan Adler, thank you very much. Jim Robinald, thank you also for being here and being our expert panelists. I'm Nick Costello with Ideas Stream, and this has been Constitutionale. <laughs>